Welcome, lucky listeners, to Culture Goes Pop, Episode 8. I am one of your hosts, Scott Wilson. And I'm your other host, Steve Strobranch. Welcome to the program. On this week's show, we got a review of Top Gun. We're also going to be discussing the first three episodes of Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which I think is a miniseries, so it's already at the halfway point. We'll be talking about Star Trek. We also have a news segment, well, what is now our, I guess I would say, weekly news segment. And I'm, I'm pleased to announce that history has been made on our show for, we are now on episode eight, and for the past seven weeks, I've been asking people to give us feedback. You know, give us the feedback, let us know if you're listening, let us know what you like, etc. We got our first feedback from Facebook, and I'm giving the name and the entire uh, response with permission. But Vicky Holland on Facebook um, it was basically commenting on our James Bond discussion. And these were her words. So Vicky says, Never Say Never was truly never a Bond film. Broccoli and Salzman never produced a movie. It was also based on Thunderball, basically a Thunderball ripoff, if you will. It also went up against Octopussy in 1983. And Maude Adams was hotter than Kim Basinger, just my opinion. We completely forgot to talk about Bond girls here. My dad raised me on Bond, and Sean Connery is the man. Uh, I like Daniel Craig, and there's something about Pierce Brodnan that makes him a really good Bond. GoldenEye is amazing. I respectfully disagree about Timothy Dalton. I don't think he was a good Bond. Roger Moore is just campy. He's in the middle for me. And finally, she says, George Lazenby is like Fight Club. We don't talk about him. <laughs> Enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. And thank you, Vicky, for uh, sending that feedback. you have any uh, anything you want to add to that, Scott? No, I'm just thankful to get that fe- feedback. And I'm thankful that we have a listener who is so thoughtful and really clearly listened to the podcast to the point where they can sort of really articulate their own reactions to a lot of the things that we said. There you go. And I'm going to add, in, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I, I know Vicky, but this is not like uh, an audience plant where we just got somebody to laugh out our jokes. Uh, this was an unsolicited response, but I do know Vicky and her husband, Greg. They do live in our town that Scott and I live in. And they also recently went to the Tampa Bay Megacon, and I saw a lot of cool pictures uh, of them there getting, you know, autographs from celebrities. They got a picture of Gina Carrero, who was in the uh, Mandalorian and a bunch of other uh, kind of sci-fi celebs. So, uh, and I've asked them if they'd like to come on sometime to talk about that experience. So I'm going to try to schedule Vicky and Greg sometime to talk about their Megacon experience recently, because I've never been to a con. And hopefully, as we grow our podcast, we can maybe start doing that and meeting people and talking to celebrities and stuff and getting little sound bites for the show. So hopefully we'll have them on in the near future. Now, you have seen the movie. I have yet not seen it. But you're going to tell us your thoughts, and we'll try to keep it spoiler-free. But if you want to go ahead and start off with your little summarization of Top Gun Maverick, and then maybe get into some more longer-form discussion that you feel appropriate. And I'll pick your brain and try to keep it spoiler-free. Okay, so my mini-review of Top Gun Maverick is as follows. Top Gun Maverick is the perfect cinematic approximation of a theme park simulator ride. In fact, this film functions best when received in just such a manner. The sights and sounds are married in such a way as to provide an experience that is almost purely visceral and sensory. Any movie theater equipped with 
even a halfway decent sound system should should suffice as every jet engine blast reverberates through the viewer's body with the force of an 808 kick drum. This is indeed Star Wars for U.S. Navy fighter pilots with F-18s supplanting X-Wings. It's a rare feat when a legacy sequel surpasses a classic original. All right, so you're saying this is better than the first one? Yes. And for anybody who does not know what an 808 kick drum is, why don't you Steve explain that to us so we know what that is. The 808 kick drum was first a feature on the Roland TR-808 drum machine. Real musicians sort of rejected it, but electronic musicians and rap music producers embraced it because it gives a really deep boom that boom. doesn't sound like a real doesn't sound like a real drum. But if you've ever been driving and had that guy next to you who's playing bass heavy music so loud that it feels like your the windows are rattling, rattling yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's our friend, the eight oh eight kick. Drum. That's, that's the that's some window rattling bass, huh? Okay. Good right. to know. All right, so you saw it. I would say it sounds like you liked it. So anything else you want to add uh, without giving away spoilers? The only thing I can add to it is just to emphasize what I said in the opening of my little mini-review. It really is like, or rather I would say, the action set pieces, the moments when they're in the cockpit flying the planes, whether it's a dogfight or a demonstration or training, what have you. Those moments make you feel like you're in the cockpit, the the marriage of sights and sounds. The fact that in a lot of those shots, if I'm not mistaken, I think that all those actors really were in the cockpit. It never feels like blue screen or green screen. It never feels like CGI trickery. It feels authentic. When they look out the sides of the cockpit window, it really feels like they're looking at the sky or looking at an enemy plane you really get the sense of authenticity. And when you combine that with the sound effects, with the beautiful cinematography, it's just an immersive experience in the way... This is going to sound like hyperbole. It's immersive in the way that I think the original Star Wars was when people saw it. When you're in the Death Star Trench run, the Battle of Yavin. I can imagine for audiences in the late 70s, and you could probably speak to this more than me because I was just born. I was only a few months old when the original Star Wars came out. I can imagine those audiences feel, felt completely immersed in what they were watching. And that's how this feels. All right. So we, we won't beat it to death then because I haven't seen it. I can't really add to it. I would just say that, yeah, I, I think everybody who's seen it so far who's you know, everybody on my friends list that I'm watching all their kind of reviews. I think the word of mouth is great for this. Everybody says it's great. They've enjoyed it. It's done right. So that this seems like a good shining endorsement. If you haven't seen it and you're a fan, then please do see it for the newer, younger generation who maybe hadn't seen the original is knowing what the first movie is about really necessary do you need to come into this with the backstory, or could you just accept this movie on its own? Does is the story kind of self sufficient enough where it stands on its own without needing to know the, the 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 history of anything? Well, allow me to emphasize: you absolutely do not have to be a fan of the original. You don't even have to have seen the original to enjoy this film. The story is simple; it's easy to follow, and it sort of flashes back just enough to the events in the original that it references so that you don't really have to have seen the original to understand 
why certain story points are significant, why certain character appearances are significant. And in fact, Tom Cruise is a much better actor now than he was in 1986. And you can see the difference when you watch this new movie. And the story is better than the one they had for the original. So no, it's completely unnecessary to have to have seen the original film. Okay. The next thing we'll go on to, and I'll go ahead and steal some of the news as well, because uh, uh, I, I grabbed a few headlines from this. So here, here's, a, here's, um, here's a really quick review of Kenobi from denofgeek.com. And Star Wars Kenobi, Episode 1 and 2 Review. This is just the headline. I'm not going to get into the meat and potatoes. But it says, Fun character dynamics, solid motivations, and prequel nostalgia make the Obi-Wan series a Star Wars treat. And then one more. This comes to us from Collider.com. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Episode 3, turns Darth Vader into the scariest Star Wars villain. So just a couple of uh, headlines there. Why don't you kick it off first and give us your kind of review synopsis. Uh, If you haven't seen it yet, spoilers will be um, exposed in this conversation. Break it down for us, Scott. Well, in short, I liked it, but not without a few issues here and there. The first episode is in what do they call it? Deliberately paced. It's kind of slow. It sets the stage for who Obi-Wan is at that point in time on the Star Wars timeline. He's not quite the same character that he was in either the prequels or in the original trilogy. So in other words, they're giving his character a starting point to have an arc and to get to the guy that we know from A New Hope. The second episode is where the story really hits the... It starts to, if not hit the ground running, it starts to take a few steps. Not a full-on run, more like a leisurely walk. The third episode is really when we get some of the things that Star Wars fans really want out of this series. That's where... And they tease it throughout the first two episodes. First spoiler warning, they tease the appearance of Vader. And they give us perhaps the most complete view we've ever seen of what Vader goes through in the Bacta tank or what Anakin goes through in the Bacta tank. The uh, kind of the assembly of Vader from his kind of carcass of a body to all the prosthetics and breathing apparatus and whatnot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. And um, it also, that headline was it from Collider that you just read? What they really mean to say is that it makes Vader scary again. Scary in the way that he was scary in Empire Strikes Back. Scary in the way that he was when Obi-Wan gave that whole monologue to Luke in the original film, telling him there was a pupil of his who was a Jedi before he turned to evil and helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. It gives us a taste of that Vader. You see him do some mass murdering. Cold-bloodedly. Yes, very much so. He's he's almost like, I told a friend of mine, he's almost like a biblical plague, a one-man biblical plague. And it's very effective. And again, spoiler alert, it leads into a confrontation between him and Obi-Wan that I don't think will be the only confrontation they have before this miniseries is over. Yeah, that third episode, I think, is really where things pick up. That's 
when it starts to become the show that people want to become. The first two episodes, they're solid, but not remarkable. The third episode is where you can see it started to build to a crescendo. Hopefully, they'll maintain that frequency, that level, until the final episode. There's Scott's uh, two cents. So I and I I watched all three of them last night. So my recollections are are very fresh. I'll start off by saying I enjoyed it, but I was also greatly disappointed on many levels on this so far. My wife literally fell asleep watching it. She couldn't stay through it. Um, I Ewan McGregor is great. He embodies. Obi-Wan and he did he did his young Obi-Wan was great his now middle-aged Obi-Wan is great so as far as him being an actor and a performer I have no complaints as far as where they're what they're attempting to do is the story I see what they want um, what they're actually doing right now um, so you know if you remember the the end of episode three where you know there's a big fight between obi-wan and anakin and he almost kills anakin matter of fact he thinks he thought he killed anakin he didn't know that the emperor grabbed him and saved him and turned him to darth vader he assumed he left anakin for dead and that's one of the reveals in this is he um obi-wan realizes oh my god darth vader is still alive you know anakin is still alive for for 10 years he thought um darth vader was dead and so at the end of episode three, you see Obi-Wan leaving Darth Vader for dead, rescuing the two children of Padme, uh, who are Luke and Leia, and, and making sure they're safe. And that's where, that's where that movie kind of ends, and that's where this one picks up, where now he's on Tatooine, and he's kind of, kind of you know, babysitting from a distance young Luke with his uncle, you know, Owen and Aunt Beru that we see in episode four, right? So it's kind of that, and, and he's living in the same cave, that Luke finds him in later on, you know, so it's kind of setting up everything that we discover in episode four about him. All of that is good. Uh, At some point in time, he has to rescue young Leah. Now, here's, I'm going to pick it apart, and these these are all my complaints. So this story, the timeline is 10 years from the babies being born. So the kid should be 10 years old. The girl playing Leah looks like she's possibly eight at best. She really, she's about the height of a six year old girl. She still has the you know mixed baby teeth of like a five or six year old girl, um, but she carries herself like a sassy young Leah. And the first few times when she's like in you know in her home talking to her mom and talking to her cousin, I'm like, oh, this is great. They're kind of embodying that sass that Leah had. You know, Leah was a princess, but she was a, a leader of the rebellion, and she was a you know no nonsense kind of gal. So we could see that in the character uh, early on. But it went from being kind of cool to it being just um, repetitive and it became annoying. I quickly became really annoyed with young Leah, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. And I've got two daughters, so I've raised girls. I'm very sympathetic to girls. Um, but I, am, I, I wanted to slap this kid several times. <laughs> I just was not a fan of young Leah. Uh, she got really annoying to me really quickly. You're not the only one. A lot of people on my Facebook news feed and some friends in my personal circle have said the exact same thing. They just don't like that young actress. They don't like the dialogue and they just find it very grating. 
Right. As as an actress and as her performing the role, especially for her age, I feel she is doing well. And kind of like the original, the, the prequel trilogy, everybody delivered their lines well, but <laughs> they were just bad lines. You know, when you look at some of the dialogue between Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman, when he's trying to uh, tell her how much he loves her and he comes across so kind of monotone, robotic, so so emotionless. Those were some of the worst delivered lines in cinematic history. The the love story between Padme and Anakin were so boring and so annoying. This is echoing that to me, unfortunately, you know. I don't really have as much of a problem with some of the dialogue. Here are the things I have an issue with, aside from the pacing in the first episode. Can we please stop this cliché of grown men not being able to catch a young child during a chase scene. Can we please stop that? How is it that a small child with legs that short can outrun presumably bounty hunters or even just goons paid to go and kidnap her? Mm. How is that? And there's like 10 of them. How is that possible? And we've seen this in a million movies. Please well, stop that. Having, having kids and having played with kids, I can say those little boogers are hard to catch sometimes. <laughs> they can run. And on her home planet where she's in the woods and she knows the territory, she does have some home field advantage of knowing where to run and jump through trees. And so I, I believe some of that was, to a point, believable. But, yeah, when, you, when you're in a whole rooftop scene where she's running away from, from Obi-Wan, you know, jumping across things, that... Again, yeah. Can can it can a kid who's you know three foot nothing outrun you know grown people? Exactly. Most likely not. Um, yeah. So I found young Leia to be annoying. Another thing that I really wasn't crazy about, and this is just me being real nitpicky, but I am not a big fan of how they're now trying to kind of retrofit a lot of stuff from uh, the Clone Wars into modern live action canon. So the whole idea of the Inquisitors. The Inquisitors never existed in any of the films. And because I'm old school, as far as I'm concerned, what is canon was what was in the first the first three movies and unfortunately the next three movies that came before them. That's what I consider to be canon. And there's been so much other stuff they've done out with animated series and the Clone Wars and this. And I never watched the Clone Wars because, you know, I just didn't have time and I was an adult and I was an adult. What am I now? I don't know. But, you know, it just, it it never appealed to me to watch the Clone Wars because I was, I was one of the old school people who were just really disappointed with the, uh, prequel trilogy and as far as i can concern i just george lucas burned every bridge with me and i didn't want to watch any other crap he was going to put out you know so um the fact they're trying to kind of retcon in a lot of this stuff i just feel it feels contrived to me and it doesn't feel like it was part of the organic star wars now who did uh, the mandalorian did a really good job with this bringing in some people from the clone wars in a way where it felt right. To me, these Inquisitors felt out of place. And again, maybe that's just my own bias and old age showing. But um, I, I wasn't a fan of the Inquisitors being in here at all. I'm actually fine with the Inquisitors. I like the little drama that's playing out between them while they're all, while the lower tier Inquisitors are jockeying for position. Uh, they refer to each other as brother and sister. I think this is where some of the acting is a little... Yeah. Kind of shaky. Yeah. I think that's the main problem. I like that character. Uh, the third Reva. sister? Third yeah. sister. Re- yeah. I, I like the idea of that character. I like characters who are ambitious to a fault, ambitious to the point of ruthlessness. And I think that 
it'll be interesting to see how her arc plays out but I do think there are some issues with the acting. I don't even know if it's the acting. I'm just wondering if it might be a combination of the dialogue and the direction. Maybe that stuff isn't really at a level at the level that it needs to be for any of this to come off very convincing. Maybe yeah. that's the problem. Yeah, and and so to me, watching this visually, looking t- taking a look at the you know hundred feet in the air down view of this movie. There are so many things that remind me of the original trilogy. They had so much budget on, right. s- on set. Not the original exactly. trilogy, the prequel. The prequel trilogy had so much money on, on on so much budget to do the visual effects and all the landscape and the scenery and the backdrop. There is so much eye candy going on visually, but to me, there's not as much content on there. So it's like really nice wrapping on an empty box you know there's really not there's not a surprise gift inside for me I, you know so all of the back you know all the scenery and the landscapes and the environments and all that stuff looks amazing which is what the first you know episode one two and three did it had a lot of eye candy and was really short on meat and bones you know and soul it's missing some soul for me oh well i was i think certain elements are yeah certain elements may be missing a bit of that feeling, that thing that's going to stick to your bones and make, have you feeling nourished after you watch an episode. But I think Ewan McGregor's performance, I think he's more human here than he ever was in the prequels. Right. I, th- I think he's definitely more human. There's more blood pumping through his veins. He seems like an actual character and not just like a guy doing an impression of what Sir Alec Guinness might have been like as a young right. man. Right, right, right. So... So I think that gets me through a lot of the other problematic elements. But what you just said about the look of it, one of the reasons why I kind of give this show a pass on certain things, it really does look of a piece with, I would say, both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. It kind of has a lot of sweeping vistas. Yeah, A lot of the widescreen shots are very much in the vein of what Lucas himself might have done with the original Star Wars or with the prequels. It, it does have that sort of old-fashioned, grand epic look to it, which I think is an asset. The parts that I think are sort of a bit soulless and perfunctory, I think some of the plot machinations feel a bit perfunctory. I'll say that. They feel a bit... They unfold in very predictable ways. They don't really seem to be trying to surprise you with a lot of stuff. Um, But I think we're both getting to the part of the show that I think we'll both agree on. So I'll let you continue. Yeah. Well, in a way I think we've probably said enough because if somebody hasn't seen it, they're going to see it regardless of whether or not we say it's worth watching. I, I I'm, I am not going to give up on it. I, I think it has potential. I think I will be entertained regardless, even if they continue to have some of these disappointing elements, um, doing a star Wars uh, production is kind of like trying to do a superhero movie. You're, it, there's there's so much fan uh, loyalty to different components of a multi-layered, textured multiverse of, of things. It's going to be hard to nail it for everyone. Um, I think to a general casual movie watcher who is not a hardcore fan, they, they, they should just enjoy it as, as something to watch. But if you're a hardcore fan and kind of a purist and somebody who, and this sounds stupid to say, but if you take Star Wars really seriously, which is kind of embarrassing for a 50-something-year-old guy to say, you, you're probably going to find a lot of things to groan over. Um, but bottom line, um, 
you know, Star Wars is a universe that I think we all want to live in and we want to see more stories take place in this universe. Um, I like these kind of bridge gap timelines that take place between things that we know about, you know, and that's what I thought uh, Rogue One. To me, Rogue One was the that's then the top four Star Wars movies, the first three being episodes four, five, and six, which is when you have to explain to somebody, well, what was the first movie of Star Wars called? Oh, that was called episode four, right? Uh, yeah, episode four, five, and six are the first three. Episodes one, two, and three are the second three. Um, and so this is basically Rogue One is kind of like uh, three and a half, right? It's like in between episode three and episode four. It takes place like two weeks before episode four. But Rogue One was a Star Wars movie that felt like a Star Wars movie. It didn't feel like a Disney Plus, you know, trying to please everybody production. It was pretty dark. It had, you know, it was literally a suicide mission that everybody died on. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, but they're trying to get the plans for the Death Star. That is what, uh, you know, Leia was protecting in the, in the first original Star Wars movie. So, um, but it was gritty. It was expansive. It was done the way you would expect a Star Wars movie to be done. And, and to me, that is what all new Star Wars productions should be like. They should be in the same kind of quality and standard level of Rogue One and anything that falls short of that to me I'm going to be disappointed in but I'll still enjoy you know but as a true loyalist purist hardcore old school diehard fan my bar is set pretty high you know and the first Star Wars movie was was truly life-changing for me and for a lot of people and for cinema so I, I hold all future Star Wars productions to that same standard of episode four you know well in closing before we go just tell me a bit of how you felt about the elements with that included Vader. You don't have to go into spoilers or anything, but how did you feel about that as a hardcore Star Wars fan? A um, serious Star Wars fan? It didn't get my blood pumping. It was not it didn't it did not induce adrenaline for me. It was good to see. Um Again, because I'm because I my my the lenses of my eyes were already starting to be glazed over with some annoyance and disappointment with with the with the whiny Leia girl, um, I was already kind of pre jaded by the time we got to that. But I just felt like it, it was there. I know it did serve a purpose, but it felt a little contrived to me. Um, and not that it wasn't genuine or authentic, but it just felt forced. Um, I almost feel like maybe they revealed him too soon and that maybe it would have been a bigger impact if we had gotten, you know, a little bit more than halfway through before we actually got the reveal of Vader. Um, I didn't hate it, but to me, it just felt, it felt forced. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Mm. So. Okay. Actually, no, I liked, I liked pretty much everything in that third episode concerning Vader. I liked, uh, them having a brief meetup, yeah, where Obi Wan, where Obi Wan finally gets to assess face to face the consequences of what happened alongside that volcano. Right. What do you and, think about James Earl Jones doing the voice now? I mean, that's the voice you want to hear, but in in a way, do you wish Hayden Christensen could have got a chance to do his version of a Darth Vader voice and actually performed the role completely? Well, there's actually a theory that was proposed on another podcast that I listened to frequently James Earl Jones was definitely providing the voice work this person also thinks that Hayden Christensen there may be there may have been some ADR where they combined both of their voices 
Oh. For for certain line readings. Because there's already ADR work being done because James Earl Jones just simply, if you can hear it in Rogue One, he sounds older. He sounds like a guy that's in his 80s or 90s. Yeah. You, You can tell the difference from, you know, the original Star Wars to when he did Rogue One. So they have to do ADR work to get his voice closer to what it was okay. back in 77 through 83. But there are certain line readings. There's one, spoiler alert, there's one line where Obi-Wan Kenobi, sa- one, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, what have you become? And Vader says, what you made me. That sounds more like a Hayden Christensen line than a James Earl Jones. It doesn't sound like something that James Earl right, Jones. Right, right, because... Darth- yeah, the Hayden Christensen, Anakin Skywalker, to me was a whiny brat, and the only the only the only person who is more of a whinier brat in Star Wars history now is the, is the Dingleberry who did the new one, Kylo Ren. Yeah, he's another whiny <laughs> crybaby, temper temper tantrum whiny. But yeah, I was getting really annoyed with Hayden Christensen. I didn't think he was a great actor. He's a good looking guy. He's physically capable of playing an action hero, but I don't feel like he really had the acting chops. Or if he did, they weren't able to be demonstrated well enough to me. His dialogue was real flat, monotematic, mono, monotone. You know, um, yeah, I was. I, I I got really annoyed with him too. He just was coming across as a one. You you don't take me seriously, Obi Wan, and you you never let me do anything. And way way way, he just came across as a real crybaby for <laughs> for for episodes two and three. You know, so. Um, I can see that as the whiny, the whiny crybaby response to "I am what you." This is what you did to me. Where? <laughs> yeah. well, that's what it, it felt. It felt like an episode three Revenge of the Sith line. It didn't feel yeah. like a, yeah. a yeah. New Hope line, or you know, it's so which makes sense. That makes sense actually because that shows you that even with the Darth Vader armor and cyborg gear on, he but, still hasn't fully made the transition to the Vader that we know. Yeah, so the crybaby is still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so some of the comments too, and we are we are trying to wrap this up, although we keep we keep adding on to it. Um, so in the in episode three, when Anakin basically kills the younglings, and you know, you know, I'll, I'll stop complaining about everything I hate about the prequel, but you know, you see him, or you know, he's killing the younglings, but it's done off screen. Uh, for maybe for dramatic effect. And in this episode three of Kenobi, you see him on screen killing uh, a family and a child and uh, basically breaking a kid's neck right in the street there uh, with no no remorse. So it went from off-screen implying how cold-hearted he is capable of being to on-screen just showing him, like, you guys are annoying me. I want to let you know I'm here. I'm serious. I'm here on business. Don't don't F with me. And so snap, snap, snap. A couple necks are broken. Who's next, right? <laughs> Give me the answer I'm looking for, you know? The one that got got to me was when he pulled that guy. He was dragging a guy. He was, like, choking him because yeah. he was using a force pull to drag him behind him across the sand. Yeah. I mean, and if you can... Just imagine being one of those villagers and seeing that. Yeah. Being one of those townspeople and seeing that. Like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah, this like, is not a guy to F with. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, like, it makes you not even want it, to. It really did make me think of a biblical play. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, f- I forget which Bible story, but when they killed the, the firstborn son of every yeah. household. And mm-hmm. then, you know, so you, so you had to uh, have something on your door or something. It really, 
kind of reminded me of that. Like, if if you don't want to get killed, do not come out of your house. Right, right, right. To put the blood of a lamb on your door or something, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so we'll wrap up the Kenobi discussion, but as we as the series continues and as we watch more episodes, um, hopefully we'll have more to report. I I want to have better things to say. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to give you my honest opinion. I'm a Star Wars fan, so I'm going to be super critical, and uh, I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like, and you don't have to agree with me, and that's okay. When I say you, I mean Scott or anybody else listening too, right? So the nice thing is, is that the two of us, we have similar tastes and likes, but we also have different, you know, opinions on what we do like or don't like. So this was, we're not the same mind here. We're not a hive mind, you and I, you know? (laughs) Thank God. God. As as much as people, and I want to say to that, I think fans, a lot of times, they want the hive mind. They want everybody to be a monolith. And it's like, how boring would that be? Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to get on to some news, and this will be brief news this week. Not a lot to cover because some of it we already covered leading up to our discussion on uh, Kenobi. But I missed this a few weeks ago. But uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, Michio Kaku, he is the uh, Japanese uh, astrophysicist, I think is his title. You've probably seen him before. He's kind of like a rock star looking scientist, kind of like a Neil deGrasse Tyson. There are some astrophysics and, and scientists now who are basically like kind of rock and roll celebrities. And, and so if you've ever watched uh, any of these specials about, you know, wormholes and, and antimatter and dark matter and stuff, he's, he's the guy who usually talks about that kind of stuff, which I love. Um, but on May 18th um, was uh, a big revelation. Uh, talking about the truth is out there, which, by the way, we should probably do a whole X-Files uh, episode at some point in time. But the United States just hosted the first public hearing on the subject of unidentified flying objects, UFOs, um, in decades, and has declassified some related findings. There are some related findings. There are still more questions than answers at this point, but I'm encouraged, it seems, as if this subject might finally be treated seriously. I appeared on CNN to discuss these developments. Um, P.S. There was some kind of lag in the live feed when I gave this interview, so please be patient. Um, But yeah, so he was on CNN and Fox News talking about the fact that now the government is is at least acknowledging that there is a UFO phenomenon and some information is being declassified. So that's interesting, right? And so that that hit us mid-May. And so thought... I just mentioned that. Anything you want to add to that, Scott? Well, I'd just like to add, this is very intriguing. Me, personally, I'm not necessarily one of the people that believes in little green men from Mars coming out, but I am open to the possibility that we aren't the only ones in this universe. So it makes sense to me that there are always things in this world that we cannot explain scientifically. And I think I saw, last year, I think I saw that footage. I think it was the Air Force had taken it. Okay. And and they were even saying they encountered some craft that were sort of mirroring their movements, but also moving in ways that are impossible for an aircraft to move, or at least the kind of aircraft that we as human beings in 2022 can make. Right. So we always encounter things that cannot be explained according to our science and our technology and right. our knowledge up until this point. So 
I'm open for it. I want to hear what the government has found. Right. Uh, and me being a sci-fi geek and kind of a space cadet my whole life, I a similar sentiment to you. I, I have an open mind. I want to believe. I believe that things are possible and things are probable. And I wouldn't take the closed-minded approach saying, no, this can't happen. This, this is not possible. You know, statistically, to say that there is there life in other universes or galaxies, just knowing the number of planets and inhabitable stars and blah, 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 you just do the math. It's, it, is, it is impossible for us to be the only sentient life in the known universe, right? And I won't even say improbable. It's just impossible. The numbers, you know, numbers are numbers. But will, that, will they ever reach us? Will we reach them? Have they been here? I don't know. I think it's possible. I'd like to believe. Um, I would even like to believe that the things that our quote-unquote government and military can't identify or understand, there may be some other kind of spec ops versions of our government and military that our government and military don't even know about. You know, some, some of these advanced crafts could be us and that are so black ops that even our normal military doesn't know about them. So it might not be green men from another planet. It might be us you know, utilizing tech that we don't want the rest of the world to know because the rest of the world knows what type of jets that we use in our military. They know what type of helicopters. We got Blackhawks. You know, so our military cargo and, and planes and, and vehicles are known to uh, enemies of the state. So the only way to do something in secret is to truly make it a secret even from our military. So that is a possibility. Who, who the hell knows, right? So <laughs> Right. Um, and the last thing about news that I'll just talk about here real quick, this is a, a little meme image I grabbed from Star Wars fans off of Facebook, which is at number four Star Wars fans. And this is a picture of uh, Natalie Portman side by side with Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley is the one who was in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, right? So here's the fact. This is, says Kira Knightley played Sabe, Queen Amidala's decoy in The Phantom Menace when Natalie Portman was on screen playing her handmaid Padme. Their looks were so similar that George Lucas tasked the internet to work out who was who in each scene. So if you remember episode one, Queen Amidala, who we thought was the queen at all times, and we thought that her handmaiden was her handmaiden, her, hand, her handmaiden turned out to be the queen, so there was a decoy, the whole nine yards. So those were the two actresses who played the queen and the decoy. We all know that Natalie Portman was Queen Amidala, Padme, who went on to become the mother of Luke and Leah. So that's, that's the end of the news. I, I, I did forget to talk about one other thing. Since I, I had not been spending as enough time watching things like Moon Knight and other things like that, um, I have spent the past few weeks catching up on a lot of Star Trek stuff on uh, Paramount+. Plus. And I do want to say I give all of that now a thumbs up. I, I, I have very minor complaints, but there's a handful of new series now. So if you're a fan of Star Trek... You've got Picard season one and season two. Highly endorse both of those. They started a couple years ago, even before Picard, they started Star Trek Discovery, which has now gone through four seasons. And the idea of Discovery was this was a ship and the timeline is about two years before the original series. And we get to meet Spock's father and everything else. And now it's gone through four seasons and they've literally gone in a lot of different directions. And I like where that show is going. And then last but not least, um, there's a new new series right now that's called Strange New Worlds with Captain Pike. And if you're a fan of the original series, you know that Captain Pike played a pretty big role on two parts. Number one, he was in the pilot episode before they recast everybody and made William Shatner the, the uh, captain of the Enterprise. But he was the first captain of the Enterprise and he was in the pilot. 
And he was also in the episode where they have to go back to this planet with the big brain dudes and he's like in a wheelchair and he can't speak and Spock is like breaking all the laws to get him on this planet so he can be kind of, you know, mentally healed by these big brain dudes on that planet. So Captain Pike is big and is part of the lore of the original series of Star Trek. And there's a brand new series with Captain Spike, Captain Pike and Spock and everybody on the Enterprise, uh, a five-year mission that takes place before Jim Kirk gets on the Enterprise. And I'm loving that series so far. I really need to jump on these Star Trek series on Paramount Plus because every Star Trek fan I know seems to be, for the most part, pleased with what they've seen. Right. I mean, you're you're not the only one. I have, like, a few people I know who are deeply, who are deep Trekkies. And they've been raving about all of these Paramount Plus shows. So I got to see what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I definitely, I highly recommend it. I think, you know, like I'm a Star Trek fan, like I am a Star Wars fan. I would I would say I'm a bigger Star Wars fan, but as far as it comes to what the new live action is right now, I think Paramount is doing a better job than Disney is right now, with the exception of The Mandalorian. But um, if I was to compare Obi-Wan to all the stuff that we've got right now with Star Trek live action, doesn't hold a candle to any of it. Um, but I will, I, will, I will mention two complaints that I have, well, three complaints I have with... Um, Star Trek Discovery. The first complaint I had with it, and this just has to do with kind of continuity, where a a starship in a timeline that takes place before the original series had advanced technology, way more advanced technology than than Captain Kirk's Enterprise has. And this this is one that existed a couple years before the Enterprise. The Enterprise is supposed to be the flagship of Starfleet, and yet somehow Starship Discovery is infinitely more advanced. And obviously, visually, and our, the special effects we can generate now in, in, in film and on TV is much better than they can do in 1966. So I get that. But you, you kind of want to hope that you make things look close enough and not look too good, right? And so my first complaint about season one was that the technology was too far advanced and, and the special effects were just so good, it just felt out of place. And that's a minor thing. Um, the, the other two complaints I will mention, um, season two is a great season. Season three is a great season. Or is it three and four? Uh, uh, yes. Okay. So season two is probably the best season overall. But so season three and season four, the entire season was one long story arc. And while, and, and then, you know, ultimately, while there are little mini stories taking place in each episode, it's just a one long 13 episode story. And you have to wait 13 hours to see how this story ends. And they did that two seasons in a row. And I found that, okay, let's do it once with the burn. Oh, but now we got to do it again with this other anomaly thing. All right, well, now it's kind of passe for me. It's, 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 it's a trick that's been played too many times. So that was really my only complaint was the nice thing about the original Star Trek was pretty much every episode, and even the next generation, every episode kind of stood on its own. It was just we had a problem. Yo, there's a problem. Yo, let's solve it. Right. And by the end and within an hour, the problem was solved. The story came to a conclusion and you were satisfied. <laughs> you know? So um, I felt that um, that uh, the, the season three and four were just long stories with little tiny, you know, rewards in the middle. But it was a, took a long time for the payoff. And that I just felt that to do that two seasons in a row was a little bit torturous for me. And um, where Strange New Worlds is much like much more like the original series, every episode is unto its own, and it tells a story, and there's a problem, and we solve it. So, and that's all. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, I mean, it, it really sounds like I got to start watching these things for myself. But 
the one thing you mentioned about the special effects being a bit too advanced or the presentation being a bit too modern, I think that's something that we run into in varying degrees with all of this stuff. I mean, I noticed that about the prequels. I know that the, the in-canon reason is that before the Empire, the galaxy was of Star Wars was much more modern and advanced. Everything looked better. Right, and we're now in the broke-down remains of what the empire destroyed right we're in the leftovers (laughs) and hand-me-downs right so right but i also think that that's george lucas's excuse for the fact that with the advances in technology he had had no respect for his own continuity (laughs) yeah yeah he he never really has yeah he never really he never really has i mean i mean luke it's one of the greatest twists in movie history to have luke be vader's son but that twist opened up the door to so many continuity problems and plot holes you know in subsequent movies and right yeah but star trek uh, i think star trek is more quote-unquote real sci-fi than star wars uh but star wars is actually more science fantasy than science fiction star trek is is the more always has always been in in many ways the more serious-minded of the two so i think it can more nimbly navigate those kind of problems there's more science in the science in the, there's more yeah. science in the fiction <laughs> right. exactly exactly yeah that's a good way of putting it so do we have any parting thoughts scott wilson as we wrap up episode eight only real parting thoughts i can say or think of are if you haven't seen top gun maverick yet definitely go check that out preferably on an imax screen if you have access to one here in florida the imax screens don't seem to be too plentiful i think we have one in west palm if i'm not mistaken and i'm not even really sure if that's the real because they have fake imax screens or at least they had them about a decade ago but see it on the best screen you can find the best presentation because you will not be disappointed also what do we have coming up in terms of well, uh, Stranger Things is out now on Netflix, Stranger Things Season 4, as far as summer movies are going. Uh, well, you know, there was a, a, a footnote about how Morbius was re-released in the limited theaters. It was released at 1,000 theaters statewide and still didn't do that well. So apparently the love for Morbius is not there. Um, it was never there. Yeah. <laughs> it was never really there. I, I, and there's been a lot. I know you, when, you, when we talked about She-Hulk, you were mentioning how the CGI looked, uh, you know, a little kind of, uh, you know, first grade crayon quality and and uh, social media has been all over that too with a lot of memes showing how you know they showed the original hulk from 2001 and then the she hulk from 2022 saying oh yeah special effects have improved in the past 20 years not right so so a lot of people are hating on what we're seeing in that she hulk uh trailer as far as the visual effects so but to be fair to be fair to those guys these days with movies and television they pretty much work right up until the wire, you know, right up until crunch time. Like to get they with movies and they've always done that even before right. the CGI era. Well, and, would work. and and in a way it kind of helped the Sonic movie because the first trailers of the Sonic movie, everybody hated the way the CGI Sonic looked and there was so right. much fan backlash that they actually ended up in reshooting all of that, which the, the visual effects are not cheap. It costs time and money to do. So um, so the fan backlash may or may not help them put another layer of processing on the final skin tones. You know, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Right, right. So in that instance, you know, 
the fan backlash kind of helped. But yeah, so She-Hulk, I'm pretty sure, right up until just before it airs the first episode, they're probably going to still be working to refine the visuals in it. So, you know, don't, don't want to be premature in passing judgment. Yeah. So I think just in, in closing, we will say thank you for listening, everybody. And as always, I'll do the whole business thing to remind you, you know, if you're listening to us, you know we're a podcast, right? But we are a podcast where you can get us on a lot of different places like Amazon Music and uh, Spotify and Anchor FM. And we're on Google Music and Apple Podcasts. So just about anywhere you can get a podcast, you can search for us, Culture Goes Pop. You can find out links to all those places and all our social media sites on our website, culturegoespop.com. And you can send feedback to us to the email address, which is called show at culturegoespop.com. And let us know what you think. Give us some feedback on an episode or some suggestions. Or if you want to join us on a future episode, let us know too. Um, that's all I have to say about that. Anything else, Mr. Wilson? Oh, nothing else at the moment. Uh, just enjoying a lot of the wondrous variety we have now in terms of entertainment i'm pretty sure by our next episode by next week we're going to have a lot more to talk about definitely we're going to talk about obi-wan episode four yes so that'll be something to look that'll be something to look forward to see how much further that goes in satisfying us hardcore star wars fans or not right 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 so there there you have it Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Strobridge saying goodbye. And I'm Scott Wilson saying goodbye. So uh, let's say goodbye then. Bye-bye now. (laughs) Peace.